Today is March 27th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today um, is Todd Roberts. He's an assistant professor of neuroscience and Thomas O. Hicks scholar in medical research at UT Southwestern in Dallas. Hi, Todd. Hi. So Todd um, is using a super modern toolkit for looking at how auditory memories are encoded and guide learning in songbirds. And so it, all, it all sounds like you um, just celebrated your first anniversary of, of your research program. Is that right? That's right. I just started at uh, UT Southwestern um, last March, and so it's been it's been one year. Okay, the experience in, in five words or less. Um, slow but great. Awesome. Okay, so with us today we've got uh, Todd Troyer, as usual. Hello. Hi, Todd. And we've got Todd's grad student, Anand Kulkarni. Hi. Okay, cool. Thanks for joining us all. Um, so, um, Todd, you've been searching for the auditory representation of the tutor song in songbird vocal learning. Um, and in your hands, the HVC, which is understood as a premotor structure that's essential for song generation, is turning out to be an important locus for encoding the tutor sensory input. So but before we even talk about your data, wait, you're shaking your head on it. Did I say something wrong? No, no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> Sometimes I do. I'm just, I'm just trying to talk. <laughs> right. So before we even talk about your data and its implications, can you first just say something about... Um, your technical approaches to this question, because your methods are, are pretty unique and incredible in the song learning field, from from what I understand. Well, um, they're new. They're 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 new to the song learning field, and but they're not new to neuroscience. Yeah. So, you know, essentially, what I did when I was a postdoc with Rich Mooney at Duke was adapt or. You know, just take some of the methods that had been de developed in mice um, for tackling, you know, in certain ways similar problems, uh, including um, in vivo two-photon imaging methods where you can track changes to uh, structural dynamics or synapses in the brain, um, optogenetic methods, and um, and some more recent genetic lesioning methods. Uh, just taking these tools that people have. have used in mice and adapted them so that they work well in birds. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the, the real benefit has been in allowing us to have greater and greater um, spatial and temporal resolution to ask questions about learning and memory that, that the field really didn't have before. So in some ways, you, I, would, you know, I would phrase it in some ways the other way, I guess, touting the songbird field. In some ways, what you've done is bring the songbird behavioral uh, power of toolbox to those methods, right? So what you have is the, the great thing about the songbirds is you have such amazing specificity in the behavior. So when you intervene when, either what time of learning with what kind of behavioral kind of thing or what specific aspects of, of inside the this temporal behavior that you do. So if you have those tools with the great... Uh, specificity and the ability to look at fine details uh, and track it over time, you bring the songbird behavioral toolbox to those methods. And in some ways, I think that's what kind of jacks things up. I mean, would you agree? Well, I guess I agree to, to a certain extent. I just don't want, want uh, people to have the impression that, that these are tools that, you know, 
that I developed because certainly I didn't. You know, I've just used used tools that others have have developed in in you know a way that that is unique. You know, for example, I think you know one of the things that's very unique about what what um, Rich and I did was uh, you know take optogenetic methods um, and tie them into this really precise behavior that songbirds use uh, to so. Particularly, what we are looking at is how a young bird memorizes the song of its tutor, and they do this during social interactions with the tutor. And these are um, the tutor sings his song, and the pupil memorizes it um, during these brief social encounters. And the song itself is incredibly precise; it only lasts a few hundred milliseconds. Um, and what we did was, you know, take advantage of this and couple the singing of the tutor and and use that to drive optogenetic stimulation in the pupil's brain. And so basically we designed an experiment so that um, we can harness the uh, temporal precision of optogenetic methods and marry that to the temporal precision of, of the behavior that the birds naturally do and design these closed-looped experiments where a tutor controls the optogenetic stimulation in the pupil's brain. And by doing this, we were able to dissect out circuits in the brain that um, tend to seem to play a critical role in in learning and memory. So I'm kind of just interested in this idea of H. So HVC is considered to be sort of um, kind of at at the top of the motor. It's a sensory motor structure. So could you... Just before, I mean, I guess we will hopefully get into some details about your actual evidence that HBC is the site of, of these these representations. But could you just say something about the impact of this idea um, on the on the on the general principles of where we understand um, sensory representations falling on the continuum between sensory and motor input output? You know that dichotomy that's sort of set up, and how people have thought about this in, in the song literature, and sort of why you're finding sort of. Different or is it different? So there's been there's been debate in the in the songbird field for quite a while on um, on where memories of the tutor song are represented in the brain, and um, people have looked in motor structures and they've looked in auditory structures, and over the last um, fifteen years or so, uh, the debate had shifted very heavily to. Um, memories being encoded in auditory regions that are presynaptic to motor structures. And so, you know, um, historically the songbird system, the neural system that is necessary for learning and producing song has been thought of as a hierarchical system. So, um, you know, in, in certain ways a feed-forward system where there's auditory circuits that are presynaptic to the motor circuits and then there's a series of of motor circuits that are necessary for producing learned aspects of behavior and driving variability in the behavior. And these two circuits have been thought of as somewhat separate things with only, um, you know, information going in one way. You know, auditory information flows into the motor circuits and then motor output comes out. Um, and there isn't much crosstalk between the two. And um, what uh, previous researchers have have identified was that um, there are two selective responses in the auditory region, um, and there is um, immediate early gene activation or expression of immediate early genes in regions of the auditory system when you play back 
uh, Tudor song and and certain areas of, of the auditory forebrain, if um, if activity in those regions are disrupted, um, that it can disrupt learning of the Tudor song and and. There's, there's been a whole series of experiments that have all pointed towards auditory regions playing an important role in encoding Tudor song. Um, but what we were interested in doing was actually looking downstream of those regions in, in the motor circuitry. And one of the reasons was um, that a previous postdoc in Richard Mooney's lab, John Prather, had um, identified mirror neurons in HVC. These are neurons that respond when the bird is um, singing its song and also respond in a similar fashion when the bird is listening to the song. And, um, and I was curious of whether or not um, these sensory responses might be um, come about early in development when the bird's first listening to a tutor song rather than developing slowly during sensory motor learning as the bird practices its song. Um, you know, birds will practice their song uh, over 100,000 times during development as they're trying to get a good copy of it. But, so, um, and so that's where, that's where we jumped off from, is, is that finding, and then looking in HVC to see if, if um, sensory experience of the tutor actually drove plastic changes in this network. Um, and then, uh, once we saw that, um, then we started doing functional manipulations to see if if this uh, network seemed to be necessary for song learning. And just to give you the full full range, um, you know what we found was that it does seem to be necessary. Um, we've and I can go into this in more detail, but um, it seems that you know basically. Any manipulation that we do that disrupts activity in HVC when a bird is being tutored is sufficient to block the bird's ability to learn from the tutor song. Um, and now the real question is whether or not you know these circuits are talking back to the auditory system, or you know what you know how does this all come back together? You know, and so I think the debate is still open because we don't really know um, yet. You know the full architecture of how sensory and motor systems are talking to each other, um, and so there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, for example, you know all of the evidence that we have to date suggests that HVC plays a critical role in in learning from the tutoring experience, but it doesn't tell us that areas downstream of HVC um, aren't involved. It could be that information is being relayed through HVC to downstream structures. Um, and so there's still a lot of work to do. So one, one, one word that, that, uh, that Solomon used that, that's, that's interesting that your experiments really don't get at, and that's the question of representation, right? right. So you get, and that starts to be where the language of sensory motor representation starts to really get, and you separate things off, and then you really start to have to confuse about what's really going on. You're talking about whether this is necessary for learning the behavior in this sensory mode. And you don't know is it a throughput for a representation? Is, right. it, a, is it setting the groundwork? Is it setting a, a ability to interface? Or is it actual representation of the thing itself? And I don't know. It goes back and forth because it's almost hard to think about the problem if it's not thinking about representation, whatever you think that is in the brain. But when you do, then you have these weird. You, then you have to decide which is motor and which is sensory, and that 
The sensory representation of the virtual song gets copied to the sensory memory that changes the motor representation, and then you have to segment things. Right. It's possible that it's not. There's all mishmash, you know. It's all happening everywhere. It's you know feedback or what or, or not, you know. And so it's like God said, the, the questions are still open about separating those kinds of things. But it's not the case that the meteor experiment shows. It's not the case that the sensory representation happens in some sensory areas, and that's independent, and then something else, the interface with the motor happens when the bird is only singing. Right, I think, I think you know, what our evidence argues against is, is, this, is this traditional view that um, is actually a very logical way of thinking about it, um, that what the bird does first is form an auditory memory, and then as it practices its song, it slowly maps that auditory experience into a motor framework that the bird uses to produce its behavior. And our, our experiments argue against that, that model. You know, and I have to say that that, you know, that model um, falls naturally out of the behavior that we observe in birds. You know, so a bird first listens to um, a tutor song, and they can hold on to these memories for long periods of time without ever practicing their song. And then once they start to practice, they then slowly develop the ability to imitate the tutor song. And you know, and so it kind of makes sense if you just think about neural circuits that, you know, maybe it would start off as just an auditory experience, a sensory experience and a sensory memory that's slowly mapped into motor coordinates. But, you know, what our experiments argue is that, you know, perhaps this um, sensory experience is directly mapped into a motor coordinate framework or a more complicated sensory motor framework. Um, and, and understanding that representation uh, is going to be a challenge. It's going to take um, a lot of work. And as you, as you indicate, you know, particularly once you get into a sensory motor area in the brain, that you know is necessary for producing a learned behavior, but is but it also is the interface to a sensory circuit. Um, you know how to dissect these things out when they're so intricately um, intertwined is is very very difficult. So, so you know, in, in terms of the visual system, which I guess everyone has to talk about when you're talking about any kind of sensory anything, right? Um, the coordinate frames are easy to sort of imagine. You know, we understand the coordinate transformation. What are the coordinate frames that we're thinking about in in auditory systems and in vocal systems. I mean, is it, can you talk about how, how that idea translates? Because the sort of XY framework and the 3D, you know, motor framework from the retina to motor output makes sense to me intuitively, right? Right, right. No, it's, it's, it's challenging, right? And I think we're still trying to grapple with that question uh, in the field. Um, you know, one thing that, that, in the field, we're pretty certain we know, um, and this has, you know, been borne out through studies from lots of lab, uh, um, including Michael Fee's lab and Dan Marbovich's lab, um, is that HVC plays a critical role in the temple organization of the bird's behavior, um, and this is, you know, through you know, studies of. You know, electrophysiological recordings from singing birds, of heating and cooling the nucleus where you can get you know, um, temporal expansion or contraction of the song depending on the temperature of the nucleus. Um, and, and so we, we, 
know that HVC, or at least we think we know that HVC is playing a critical role in, in the temporal organization of the behavior. Um, whether, whether it's playing a role in the spectral organization of the behavior is, um, is there's a potential there too, but we know less about it uh, so far. But, right, so the bird, what it has to do, the challenge that it has is, um, you know, uh, song framework would encompass, you know, frequency modulation, amplitude modulation, um, you know, the pitch of individual elements, where it starts and stops these individual elements. You know, and so it's it's a really higher order type of of representation, you know, where you're combining lots of lots of different um, parameters. So are you gonna be able to do you think that optogenetic tools are going to be the right way to resolve some of that? Because, I mean, you showed us some remarkable data about how simulating NHVC at temporal interval can actually change the structure, the actual spectral structure of the song. Is that right? Did I, did I understand that right? Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Right. Well, what, what we've seen in, um, in some of our preliminary studies is that if we, when a bird is listening to the tutor song, um, if we stimulate into the circuitry that's projecting into HVC, into the auditory inputs, this auditory pathway that comes into HVC, that, um, and again, we're only stimulating when the bird is listening to the tube, and, um, and then we raise the birds up in isolation to adulthood and see how much they learn from this tutoring experience, is that we can block their ability to learn the tutor song, but on top of that, what we see is that the birds... Um, have a tendency to emulate the frequency patterns of what, how we were stimulating in the brain. And so um, they will sing song elements that have that are repeated at intervals that map onto our stimulation parameters. Um, you know, suggesting that perhaps we're tapping into a circuit that's doing um, online encoding of temporal features of the tutor song. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's another thing that's that's interesting in terms of uh, that maybe down the line that um, well, uh, Michael Brainerd and we're we're starting to do it too, and uh, lots of other people in the field are doing that uh, um, that you've done with the tutor song, right? So you've done things like. Uh, you could change with you could change uh, the birds have the birds change their song as an adult by triggering aversive stimuli to very specific features of uh, of what's happening. So you say target a given syllable, the pitch is too high, you play a noise, and the bird moves its song to avoid that. Well, you could you could pair something like that, whatever the stimulation is. So you could say if you think that it's aversive or rewarding, you could instead of doing a, an aversive stimulus like a noise burst, you could say stimulate VTA or do get into the circuits that you think are either aversive or rewarding, and you can perturb things that are very specific. So you could trigger based on that triggering. You could do some optogenetic stimulation in some particular uh, area that you feel that that it's important, uh, and then it's encoding this feature versus that feature, and only and only perturb you know trigger based on one feature or the other. And you can start to figure figure this out because you can target disruptions 
it's harder with kind of active, uh, you know, implanting a frequency in the in the brain or some kind of memory is a lot harder. But if you could target uh, certain disruptions of specific features to specific areas under specific circumstances and do it in a kind of a closed loop way where the bird is under control of that. And I think the, the possibilities for picking apart some of these things, you know, are really pretty promising. Um, yeah, I think the tool set, you know, has, you know, people have put a lot of work and effort in the Songbird field of developing the tools for doing this. Um, you know, so, you know, just recently people have published, uh, Ben Solvesky's group at Harvard has published a very nice paper where they're showing that they can dissect out, you know, circuitries that, circuitry in the brain that's important for shaping temporal components using these, these reinforcement methods that, that Todd is talking about versus circuits that are important for spectral components of the bird's song. Um, and so, you know, marrying that with, with optogenetic methods or, or, you know, more circuit-specific types of techniques. I think one of the challenges that we have in our field, though, um, because we don't have the um, arsenal of genetic tools available to us, is really going to be getting to the cell-specific techniques, you know, where you're not just, um, you know, optogenetically activating or silencing a population of cells, um, you know, with incredible temporal specificity, but still, you know, without cellular specificity or without synaptic specificity. And I think that's going to be the next, you know, hurdle that the field needs to get over, you know, so that we can really start, um, you know, dissecting out these complicated circuits in a more meaningful way. So do you have an update? Uh, I mean, I don't keep up with that stuff about how how are things going. I mean, the ZebraFinch genome has been sequenced and all this stuff, and people are working on transferring more and more of those tools over to this song system. Do you have any sense of how that's going? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a, I don't have a sense. I know that more and more people are trying to do transgenics now, and it seems to be successful. But so far, at least in the published work, it's still, um, it's still based on uh, using lentiviruses to make transgenic animals. And you know, as you can imagine, uh, so this is taking a lentivirus, injected it into um, making a window in the egg right after the egg is is laid. Um, and using that to uh, generate transgenic birds, you know, there are many problems with this technology. Of course, right? You know, you have limited ca packaging capacity in these type of viruses. Um, you're not targeting specific regions of the DNA. Um, you're not inserting it in certain regions, you know, so you can't readily do knockouts or knock-ins um, in any meaningful way. You also can't control copy number um, in the DNA. And so and leading to epigenetic problems in terms of you know, sustaining these transgenic lines. Right now, the way that um, you know, I and others have been working on addressing these methods is using cocktails or different types of viruses with different serotypes and using um, the circuit anatomy to get at it. And so there are, um, you know, you can use um, AAVs, for example, with different serotypes and, and the different serotypes, um, you know, some will only infect locally in a region while others will express retrogradely. You can use that in combination with with pre recombinase and, um, and pre-dependent viruses or, or transgenes and be able to then get um, 
self-specific expression in projection neurons, for example, um, you know, retrogradely expressing Cree in one population and uh, you know, getting them to express a gene of interest. But um, you know, that will get us part of the way there, but it's not going to get us the whole way there. Um, so you know, perhaps if there are enough groups that are working on um, you know, these new transgenic methods, you know, CRISPR and talents uh, in trying to generate perhaps, you know, backbone transgenic animals that will make the development of future transgenics um, faster and easier. Uh, we can get there quickly. Is that imminent? Is it, I mean, what's the word on the street? Yeah. But you're the guy, right? Who sort of would know. Well, no, I, I, haven't, I haven't really dabbled in transgenics myself. Um, so, so you're the potential market. Yeah, exactly. I am the potential market for those. But um, no, I think, you know, um, uh, Carlos Lewis uh, would probably know the best. You know, I think he's done the most work. He's published published uh, the first transgenic songbird uh, work. There's, um, uh, there's been some recent abstracts at SFN. Um, you know, talking about the next generation of transgenics, but but I am unaware of any major breakthrough. But that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> there, there could be. Yeah, you're a beginning assistant professor. Like, in your lab and other things. Yeah, there there, there might be uh, you know four nature papers in queue to come out next week, and I want to know. I'll be aware. Um, yeah, no, I think, but I think the community, community would benefit from a more concerted and unified effort to try to tackle these issues. Um, you, know, uh, you know, as far as I know, it's pretty dispersed right now. And people are working on this in isolation. But, you know, for us to make real progress, it's going to take several labs um, working, you know, on not in competition but in unity, trying to move forward, move the, move the transgenics forward. Historically, the, the songbird community has been pretty um, uh, tight, right? I mean, it's a, it's a good group of people who have... I mean, there's not a lot of adversarial stuff going on, right? I know you don't want to say this no. on the record, but no, <laughs> it I seems like I... that from the outside is that the people we've had come through are all super collaborative and, um, you know, we can leave, let that fall flat. That's okay. No, I think, it's, I think the answer is yes and no, but... It, it it's as good or better than some other fields. It's worse, I think. It's more competitive and more fractured than maybe some other fields. But I overall, I I would say that, that that's a reasonable impression. Uh, yeah, and, and of course, part of the unity you know, comes from the fact that that you know I think the questions that we're asking um, in the songbird field are all I think everyone's on the same page on what's important, mm-hmm. right? We all have. Uh, similar goals and similar types of questions that we're trying to answer. Yeah, I mean, I, and so, I, I, and so the field does seem to move forward. Yeah, I, I say that because there is this like a, we've had people here. We've had Allison Duke here. We've had Eric Jarvis here, and they've talked about um, this wanting to pull together the, the avian brain nomenclature form. Right. Just this sort of needing to understanding that you sort of need to pull together to to build a, a real database of how to understand this this, this system. So that that's what came to mind, and that's. Yes, no one should ever go on record saying that their their field is contentious or, or not. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, I, had a, I had a question regarding the the experiments that you published about uh, the stabilization of the spines in the HVC uh, post tutoring experience for that for a juvenile. So. Uh, 
and that sort of suggests some kind of a stabilization of I mean that's a cessation of plasticity to, to whatever extent it does so uh, in that technique is there any way to sort of uh, tease apart uh, HVC HVC uh, synapses versus let's say AV or NIF HVC synapses now, so is it possible that the synapses that come from the auditory system really stabilize but the plasticity in the HVC HVC synapses goes on uh, until you crystallize the song. No, that's a great question. It's a, it's it's an important issue, and um, right now we don't have a great method um, for doing this. It's it's very difficult to know who the presynaptic partner is um, for for these dendritic songs. Um, so can we just back up for one second? Just hold your thought. This this is the idea. I don't know if the listeners got it from the the, the question, but um, so you've shown that. The, you've actually um, correlated synaptic structure in vivo with the quality of behavioral learning following post um, tutor song exposure, right? So, it has, so you correlated spine number and size with song crystallization. With with learning of uh, from the sensory experience of the tutor. So what we did was um, use leniviruses to express um, EGFP in neurons in HVC in young birds that were raised in isolation from a tutor song. And then we went in and did longitudinal two-photon imaging of these neurons and tracked changes to dendritic spines um, in HVC in birds before they had a tutor experience and then following tutoring experience. And what we saw was um, a couple of things. First, we saw that, um, that birds prior to tutoring start off with high levels of spine turnover, um, suggesting a more dynamic uh, synaptic network, and that following tutoring in the birds that subsequently learn from the tutoring experience that um, the level of spine turnover, this is the average of the gain and loss spines, that this decreases sharply. Um, in conjunction with that, we saw that the population of stable dendritic spines gets larger, um, that not in number, but I mean in volume, so an individual dendritic spine that is there before the bird has a tutoring experience and is still there after the bird has a tutoring experience that the, that the spine head gets bigger, they enlarge. And, um, this is correlated with um, increases in the number of amber receptors in the spine head and with synaptic strength. Um, and so, but, you know, the question um, is, do we know who these spines are, you know, who are their presynaptic partners? Are they, um, are we looking at a network of spines that are receiving local inputs from other HVC neurons, or are we looking at spines that are receiving um, extrinsic in inputs from auditory areas in the brain? Um, you know, the basic answer is that we don't know, but um, we have some pieces of evidence that um, indicate that, you know, at least a portion of these spines that we're looking at are um, associated with receiving input from auditory regions in the brain. Um, and we know that because we've also done um, electrophysiological experiments. We've done sharp intracellular recordings in HVC in vivo before and after the birds have been tutored. And what we see is um, an 
increase in the uh, amplitude of depolarizing postsynaptic potentials immediately following tutoring experience, and we see an increase in bursting activity in these neurons. And we know that bursting activity um, in HVC is driven from um, an auditory input to HVC, a neuron called NIF. And so um, when we take all of these pieces of evidence together, it suggests that um, at least one thing that's likely happening when the bird gets tutored is that the synapses between NIF and HVC are getting stronger. Thanks for bringing that up. Well, thank you for being here. We're kind of out of time. Um, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop with Todd Roberts. Thanks, Todd. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.